Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue studying God's Word together. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be sharing a message entitled, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, maybe you're looking for a church, a place to worship with others and connect and learn and grow Let me invite you to Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you need to reach out to us, you can call us at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Now, all those things will be in our show notes. So if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. We'd love the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and have that opportunity to worship together. Now, again, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message that talks about the resurrection, talks about those things that we need to know as we talk about our faith, specifically about Jesus. His message is entitled, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Let's listen together. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, page number 961 in the Pew Bibles, if you choose to use one of those. Well, now that my age has been plastered all over the screens and publicly announced, we're going to begin on this side and go around the room, and each one of you need to stand up and tell everybody how old you are. I know what you're thinking. He is so well preserved. (laughs) But if it uh, helps you to know it, what's on the outside and what's on the inside are two different things. There are sometimes on the inside, I don't feel like 70 short years. I feel like 70 years in dog years. So that would make me about 490 this morning. And so if you're okay with that, I'm going to sit down, but I hope that you will not take that to um, uh, interpret that as being casual about what we're talking about. It would just be better uh, for me this morning. After all, you get to sit through the sermon, and uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And uh, just think of me as your Jewish rabbi who always taught sitting down. Maybe that will work. By the way, uh, those of you who are faithful men and faithful women in our discipleship ministry, uh, just to let you know if you didn't notice, uh, there are uh, the Bible study outlines uh, at the Welcome Center this morning. So be sure to pick one of those up. Uh, you have a... Uh, your next meeting coming up in a couple of weeks. So anyway, most of the time we think about Christ's resurrection from the dead. And we did that last Sunday, right? On Resurrection Sunday, what we typically call Easter Sunday. And so it may seem weird to you that we're singing songs all about the resurrection and that I'm speaking on the resurrection again this morning. But we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every single Sunday and every single day. Without the resurrection then everything else completely implodes as far as the Word of God is concerned. Everything in the Old Testament, 
move towards the life of Christ and his death on the cross, but also his resurrection from the dead. And everything after that event recorded in the Gospels uh, is uh, there because of the resurrection and as that message was spread around the world. And we are the recipients here some 2,000 years later of the gospel uh, spreading across not only the Mediterranean area, but finally uh, across Europe. And, and then some time ago, as the uh, brave, uh, courageous uh, pioneers sailed westward and came to uh, this, this nation, what would become this nation, they brought with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are the recipients of that today. And so we are in a direct lineage uh, owing our hope of eternal life back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But many times when people think about the resurrection, even believers, they tend to think of it as simply a matter of personal faith and personal belief. And maybe you have a friend or family member that will say to you, well, if you want to believe that, that's okay. Uh, that's okay for you. It's just not for me. And so it's reduced to a, uh, a, a rather unusual event, maybe a hard to believe or accept event. And uh, it is said it's just a matter of faith. And certainly without personal faith, the message of the cross and the message of Christ's resurrection would not avail to any value in our lives. It is a matter of faith. But I want to suggest to you uh, that this event, what seems so far-fetched uh, as the skeptics would describe it and think of it, this event that challenges our categories, that, that absolutely stretches our imagination, that, that demolishes and crashes through uh, our time-bound and earth-bound understanding, this event is a verifiable event of history. That if honestly looked at, that if honestly looked at, then you come away realizing that the resurrection is something that you have to grapple with as an actual event of history that's not just a matter of faith, but that is supported also by reason. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can get saved by your reason. I'm just saying to you uh, that we have a foundation for our faith, that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is one of the most verifiable events in all of the history of mankind. And Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the author. He is the hero of the story itself. So I want you to follow along. We read these verses last week, but I hope that you'll follow in your Bibles again uh, today. And I want you to listen for the assuredness or the surety in, in Paul's voice as he writes these words. Listen to his matter of factness as he describes beginning in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you 
unless you believed in vain. Now let me just pause for a minute and listen to that phrase, those first two verses. The gospel I preached to you. You received it. It's a matter of personal receiving, personal faith. And today you stand in that faith. You stand on that gospel. And not only that, but by which you are being, not just have been, but you are being saved by that gospel. Listen to me. Belief in the gospel and salvation is not just a one-time event in our lives. Now, follow me all the way through or you're going to leave here saying, I'm preaching some kind of heresy. Believing in the gospel and trusting in Christ, there is the event of salvation when we trust. But there is also the process of salvation whereby we are being saved, not just from our sins and our sin nature, we are being saved and sanctified day by day by walking and believing in the gospel. That the gospel has a past tense, it has a present tense, it has a future tense. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. One day when God calls us home, we will be ultimately saved from the very presence of sin. So he is saying to these believers, you are being saved. Now, verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, if ours is a reasonable faith, if the resurrection is something that is reliable and definitive and the evidence is there, how can we prove it? So I have basically two questions for you today. It's a two-point message, but don't get excited because there's a lot of stuff to cover at least in one of those points, all right? How can we prove the resurrection is the first question. The next question in just a little bit will be, what is the evidence for it? If we can prove it, what is the evidence? But first of all, how can we prove the resurrection? And people often ask the question, what do you Christians do about science? I mean, after all, science is, is the proof of everything. And so if you, can, if you can prove to me the Bible scientifically, or if you can prove to me the resurrection of Christ scientifically, if you can give me scientific proof, then I will know that in reality, the truth of the Bible is reliable, that I can place my confidence in it, uh, that science is key. Well, keep this in mind. 
While the Bible is not a scientific book, it does not even purport to be a scientific book. It is uh, something that continuing through the years, as scientists learn more and more about our universe, about the human body, about so many other things, the Bible continues to be reinforced in its truthfulness by science. Now, we could go into all of that, but again, I will say to you that, that science itself, though giving some good evidence, does not necessarily prove the Bible. This idea of proving the Bible scientifically, let me tell you why it doesn't work. First of all, let's talk about what is the modern scientific method of research. How does science go about learning facts and doing research. And I want to say to you that most scientists, the vast majority of scientists, have three presuppositions when they begin to do scientific research of any kind. The first one is this. Number one, there is no God. Because with science, we've got to be able to prove what we can put into a test tube or look at under a microscope. And number one, there is no God. Number two, there is no supernatural. If there is no God, nothing can have a supernatural reason behind it. And then number three, if there is no God and there is no supernatural, then there's no such thing as a miracle. A miracle. So when you begin to encounter miracles in the Bible, the scientist almost always will just shove it to the side and chalk that up to mysticism, fairy tales, or something else. The modern scientific method operates on the basis that you've got to be able to go into a laboratory or some kind of controlled environment, and you've got to be able to reproduce your examination over and over and over again to see if indeed the results that show up are verifiable. And I want to say to you that you cannot prove any historical event with science. You can't do it. The next time someone says to you, maybe at school or on the job somewhere, or maybe a family member who's an agnostic, maybe even an atheist, will prove to me the Bible and prove to me the resurrection scientifically. Answer them this way. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you prove for me that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States scientifically? You can't do it. You can't even reproduce what happened yesterday scientifically to learn from it. It is past tense. It is over. It is not reproducible. And the scientific method says that you have to be able to reproduce or reenact something in a controlled environment such as a laboratory to determine its truthfulness or whether or not it is verifiable. We don't use science to prove anything historical. What we use is a different method, and it is the legal historical method of research. You want to know if something happened in history? 
You want to know if, if President Abraham Lincoln was indeed the 16th president of the United States? Don't use science. You can only use the legal historical method of research. What does that mean? <clears throat> this is what's used in a court of law every single day in our country. So what is the evidence that you use? What do you look for? You look for written testimony. What has been said about that person or that event in history, whether it was yesterday or whether it was 10,000 years ago, what is the written testimony about it? Number two, what is the oral testimony about it? You bring in oral witnesses, experts, to give their testimony. And number three, you look for physical evidence. You look for exhibits. You've watched the old Perry Mason show, right? <laughs> you know, there's exhibit A and exhibit B. You bring in the evidence. You listen to people's testimonies. You read what's been written. And from that information, you, the jury, make a decision about it. Now, I want to be <clears throat> a bit reluctant to put you in the jury's seat today. But in essence, we all are at some time or the other, are we not? To determine if we can believe <clears throat> this message that we know as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. At some point, every one of us have to look at it and decide, can we, will we believe it for ourselves? We sit in the jury, we look at the evidence, we don't look to science to, to reproduce any of it. It cannot. It cannot be reproduced exactly in a controlled environment again. But we look and see what is the written evidence, what is the oral evidence, what is the physical evidence. Now, let me just pause for a moment and we'll go to the second point, And that's where most of what I want to say to you today uh, is contained. What we're talking about here is a field called apologetics. Are you familiar with that word, apologetics? Now, I know what that word sounds like. It sounds like apology, right? The field of apologetics, though, is not to make an apology for anything. The field of apologetics is the practice of giving answers, reasonable answers, for the truth of the Christian faith. It's looking at the evidence. It is presenting the evidence. It is to make a defense for the Christian faith. Now, <clears throat> there's different ways you can go into apologetics. We'll talk about it today from the legal historical aspect. You can study it from a philosophical standpoint. And if you want somebody that has the knowledge and the brains to do that, don't look up here but look to Eric Halsell right down there. He's the guy with the long beard. He is our philosopher in residence. He is seeking to, uh, to uh, further his education in this field of philosophy so that he can be adept at doing apologetics from a philosophical standpoint. There's different ways, ways that um, apologetics can be done. And there's great materials written. One of the first, now certainly not the first, because they were written centuries ago, 
Uh, but one of them written in our lifetime, most of our lifetime, is a classic book today called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I've lifted that title for the title of this message. It was written by Josh McDowell. It was written to present the claims of Christ on a university campus where it is often most challenged and most rejected. And I would encourage you, there's so much more. I'm going to skip. This is going to be like a rock being thrown and skipping. I'm just going to hit a few points right on the surface, and I'm going to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of the person that has to make a decision about that. So, uh, what do, how do we know? Where do we find our uh, evidence? We find it and we, prove, we look for proof, not in science, but in the legal historical, in what people have said and what people have written and what the physical evidence shows. So what is the evidence for the resurrection? Let me read to you. And I want to read several quotes to you this morning. This is the most lengthy, but follow me here. This is what one Christian historian uh, apologist has had to say. For 2,000 years, Christians have insisted that Jesus rose physically from the dead on the Sunday after the crucifixion. The historicity, that means the historical accuracy of the resurrection is central to Christian theology. Why? Because Jesus' death and resurrection are both tied to our salvation. While most religions teach that we are saved on the basis of the good things we do, Christianity teaches that we are saved on the basis of what Jesus did for us. The Bible insists that while we were still far from God, ignoring Him, rejecting Him, and rebelling against Him, that God drew near to us in Christ to bear our sin, to take our punishment, and to die on the cross in our place. Now listen to this last sentence. The resurrection was God's confirmation. <clears throat> that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And it is God's assurance to Christians that they have been forgiven. You want assurance of your salvation? Stop looking back and trying to rehearse what you did or did not do to get saved. Instead, look to the exclamation mark that God put out there. The exclamation mark is the resurrection of Jesus. That's how your salvation is secured today. Now, it has been said that Jesus is the door of history. He is the door of history. Meaning that our calendars, even the calendar we live by, every single day acknowledges and recognizes the life of Jesus Christ. I grew up in a time where we either lived in B.C. or A.D. Are you still familiar with those terms? Before Christ or A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Now I know that in recent years, probably you kids in school, you've seen all that change because we've done our best to take Christ out of our history. And we say B.C.E. Before the common era, or we say um, uh, 
today, the common era, uh, meaning the time in which we live today. But whether you use uh, B.C. and A.D. or B.C.E. and C.E., understand it still is divided by the life of Christ. He's the door of history. I mean, you can talk all you want to about Julius Caesar and all you want to about the great conquerors and great kings of the past and the great people of our day, but we don't divide our calendars by those people. Our calendars are decided by the life of Christ. And let me say this to you. If Jesus is the door of history, I want to say to you, that door swings on the hinge of the resurrection. Pull the pin on the resurrection and the life of Christ and all of his claims and even his sacrifice on the cross absolutely falls flat and does nobody any good. You can go to the grave of every great founder of every great religion in the world today and you can see the place where those founders still remain buried. But when you go to where Jesus was buried, you find an empty tomb. We find that this door of history, this greatest person of all history, Jesus Christ, the one in whom our salvation begins uh, and stands from beginning to end, that it all hinges on, his, on the fact of his resurrection and his coming out of the grave. Without that, everything falls apart. So listen to some of these people. Very interesting. This man's name is Jeffrey Louder. If you don't recognize that name, that's good because he's co-founder of Internet Infidels. And I hope you're not reading after him. But this is what this Internet Infidel has to say. Strong historical arguments can be made for the resurrection. For those who believe in God's existence, the resurrection is a plausible explanation. Now, he doesn't personally believe in Jesus being the Son of God, but if you choose to believe it, he's saying you have good evidence for what you choose to believe in. Antony Flew, an atheist turned deist philosopher, but who is not yet a Christian, said this, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and in quantity. And then Pinchas Lapid, a Jewish scholar, said, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. Why did he believe it is a historical event? Because if you take the legal historical approach and you look at the written evidence, the oral evidence, and the physical uh, exhibits, he says, I believe that it took place. Well, what historical evidence then convinced these non-Christians that the resurrection should be taken seriously? Well, we could look at a lot of things. That book Evidence that demands a verdict goes into a lot of things. 
it talks about the reliability of Scripture. That's a whole field of apologetics itself, how we can be assured that what we read here is truthful and reliable. You could go into the things such as the seal that the Romans put on the stone that was rolled in front of the grave, of these guards that were placed there to prevent anyone from stealing that body. And you can study these things plus so many other finer points and get further evidence. But let me just give you some evidence to think about in in these four broad areas. What about Jesus' death and burial? Jesus' death and burial. It is the single fact, Jesus' death on the cross and his burial is the single fact most mentioned in all of the historical records of his life. Other things that he did and said, nothing is mentioned any more than his death and his resurrection. In the New Testament, Virtually every book of the New Testament speaks of the resurrection of Christ. If you look beyond the Bible to non-Christian historians like Josephus or Tacitus, these men also wrote about the death and the burial of Jesus of Nazareth. It was never in question by any serious historian. Not only that, but early Christian writings after the days of the apostles, in the days of Clement and the epistles of Barnabas and Polycarp and others, it is all referred to. The death and burial of Christ is undeniable. It is extremely unlikely that early Christians in starting this new religion. And that's what is said that they did, that these people wanted to start a new religion and break out of and branch out of Judaism. It's unbelievable that they would think of a creation story of their Messiah as a way to advance a new religion. Listen to this agnostic, Bart Ehrman, who writes, It is hard today to understand just how offensive the idea is of a crucified Messiah, how offensive that would have been to most first century Jews. Since no one would have made up the idea of a crucified Messiah, Jesus must really have, been, have existed and must really have raised messianic expectations and must really have been crucified. If you were making up a religion, a new religion, and you were going to call it Christianity, you would not have your hero nailed to a cross. That's absolutely Ludicrous! It would have been offensive to everyone, especially the Jews. New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann said, The fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. So, we cannot doubt or call into question the death and burial of Jesus. Understand that some people, some people make that attempt. They, they try to say that Jesus did not die, 
that he only swooned, that he passed out from the loss of blood or pain, but that he did not really die. And that's why he came out of the grave, because he didn't ever really die. But keep this in mind. These Roman soldiers were professionals. They were tried and tested soldiers. They were hardened merchants of death. They knew how to inflict painful torture. They knew how to whip a victim in such a way or place them on the cross in such a way that they could extend their life or cause them to die quickly. They could do all of those things. They knew how to take a man to the very point of death and then leave him suffering. These men were experts. They knew how to inflict painful torture, how to extend the life and the suffering, how to kill. They most certainly killed Jesus. If you remember, the scriptures tell us in the Gospels that because it was late in the day on Friday and that preparation for the Passover was going to begin at six o'clock, that's when the Passover started, that it was important not to leave a man hanging on the cross. And one of the things they would do is they would take a, a hammer, a sledge-type hammer, and they would reach up and they would break the thigh bones of the victim on the cross. And by breaking those bones, they made it impossible, whether tied to a cross or nailed to a cross, for you to push up on, uh, by the feet and the legs in order to get another breath. Understand that when you died on the cross, you usually died from suffocation. When you became so weak, you could not push up. But when they got to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. Why? Because it was a fulfillment of Scripture that not one bone of the Messiah, of the sacrifice, would be broken. If we accept the position that Jesus did actually die on the cross and was actually buried then we must ask, what happened to Jesus after his death and burial? So we come to the second area of evidence, and that is an empty tomb. An empty tomb. The New Testament Gospels claim that the tomb of Jesus was found empty on Sunday morning following his crucifixion. Why can we believe that? What is the evidence for that? Let me give you two or three thoughts. First of all, the strongest piece of evidence in favor of this historical accuracy of the empty tomb is the report that it was discovered by whom? Do you remember? It was discovered by women. Now, this is not intended to insult you ladies here. But it was a different day and time then. The testimony, remember, written testimony, oral testimony, physical evidence. There was the written testimony. The scripture had promised that he would be resurrected. The oral testimony first and foremost came from the women, the two Marys, and also Joanna, remember, as they went to the tomb early on the day after the Passover on Sunday morning. This is the oral evidence and then we have the physical evidence. The tomb was, in fact, empty. The stone was, in fact, rolled away. But if you're making up this story, 
going back and putting us in the position of a group of people that, that we're doing our best to create our own version of Christianity, our new religion. If we wanted to uh, advance the idea of an empty tomb, the last thing we would do, being Jews living 2,000 years ago, would be to put the evidence uh, forward at the mouths of women. Why? Because women had a very low status in that culture, in that century. Not only that, the first century Jewish historian, Josephus, we've already mentioned him. He discouraged putting any kind of confidence in the testimony of women saying, if a woman says it, it is totally unreliable. So why in the world would you tell the story and tell it from the standpoint of women going there first? If the early Christians were inventing a story to support their own version of events, why not credit the discovery of the tomb to witnesses who would at least be received as being credible? Listen to what uh, this Jewish New Testament scholar, Giza Vermes, said about that. In the end, when every argument has been considered and weighed, the only conclusion acceptable to the historian must be that the women who set out to pay their last respects to Jesus found to their consternation not a body, but an empty tomb. All right, you have the testimony of the women. Let me give you a, a second thought about that. That the tomb was indeed empty on that Easter Sunday morning. It was barely seven weeks later that just a short distance, a stone's throw from this burial place, that the apostles on the temple uh, grass began to preach on Pentecost Sunday morning. And what did they preach? They preached a resurrected Savior. They preached a Savior who defeated not only death, but also the grave. Peter preached on that day. The Spirit of God came on that day. 3,000 people were converted to this fledgling, brand new faith called Christianity, called Christianity later. But understand, there were only 120 believers in that church initially. But now, after Pentecost, 3,000 120. And the message they preached was the message of a resurrected Savior, of an empty tomb. Now listen to me. 49 days after the resurrection, on the 50th day, on Pentecost, when they preached, if that tomb still had the body of Jesus, people could go there a short walk and look and see for themselves. For in seven weeks, understand lying in the tomb, even for that length of time, his features, his hair, his teeth, his stature, his wounds of crucifixion, and other things would still be identifiable. It'd be one thing if it was a thousand years later and that tomb contained bones, but even that would have been a testimony against them. 
But understand what they preached. If you went from the place uh, where they were preaching to the tomb to see if their message was true, you would find the tomb empty. Jesus was not there. Well, some will say, well, obviously his body was stolen. And here's so we have the third evidence about the empty tomb. If you read the Gospel of Matthew in the last chapter, chapter 28, you will find a discussion between the guards who were guarding the tomb and the religious leaders regarding the body of Jesus. And you find that in Matthew's account, in what they had to say, he states that the Jewish leaders of his day insisted that Jesus' body had been stolen by the disciples. Understand, these guards were guilty of a crime worthy of capital punishment. But it was beyond their power. Jesus had risen from the dead. The angel had rolled away the stone. They saw that and they ran for their lives. And so the chief priest and the elders, the Jewish leaders, they even acknowledge the tomb is empty. So what can we say? How can we defend that? How can we do our best to, 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 to dismiss that bit of evidence, that exhibit that the tomb is empty? We will agree that our testimony, let's get our story straight and get our story together. The apostles came and stole his body. And that's the, that's the uh, reason, that's the excuse, that's the story that they continued to tell, in spite of the fact that you had apostles who had no power politically or an influence, who did not have the weaponry or the training or anything else to go against Roman guards and to overcome them and to steal his body. For these reasons, most skeptical responses to the resurrection do not simply dismiss the empty tomb as a legend. They try to preserve or provide some alternate answer for it. So we have his death and burial. We have the empty tomb. Very quickly, let me mention, what about the belief of the apostles? What about the belief of the apostles? These men had claimed to have seen him alive after he had been executed. Not just once, not just a fleeting glimpse, not someone that may have looked like him, not an apparition, not a spirit, but they saw him repeatedly. They touched him. They talked to him. They ate dinner with him. The, this limp was not limited to just the 11 apostles, a handful of men that can all get their story together, but he was seen by more than 500 at one time. It is nearly universally accepted by historians that these disciples genuinely believed they had encountered the resurrected Jesus. Even if they were mistaken in their belief, again, Gerd Ludemann, the historian who denies, who denies the resurrection, said this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death. 
in which Jesus appeared to them as a risen Christ. Even the skeptic says something must have happened to cause them to believe it. And I think the reason that supports that is the fact that none of these men ever recanted this story. These men, these disciples, these apostles, along with many other of the first century believers, that they faced awful deaths. The apostles themselves, we know that James, Peter, and Paul were all executed for their faith. Church tradition and church history maintains that all of the 11 of the 12 apostles were eventually martyred, and many of them in very gruesome ways. We, at least one or two, as far away as what became modern-day Germany, as far away as what would be today modern-day India. They traveled spreading the gospel and died awful martyrs' death. And there's not one record of a single one who ever backed up and recanted his belief in a resurrected Savior. Even Muslim author Reza Aslan, who argues that it's impossible to know exactly what happened after Jesus' death, nonetheless recognizes the significance of these considerations. This is what he says. One could simply dismiss the resurrection as a lie and declare belief in the risen Jesus to be the product of a deceived mind. However, there is this nagging fact to consider. One after another of those who claim to have witnessed the risen Jesus went to their own gruesome deaths, refusing to recant their testimony. This is not in itself unusual. Many zealous Jews died horribly for refusing to deny their beliefs. But these first followers of Jesus were not being asked to reject matters of faith based on events that took place centuries, if not millennia before. They were being asked to deny something that they themselves personally, directly encountered. That from a Muslim historian. One of the neatest stories, and I'll hurry to finish. One of the funniest, not funniest, um, one of the greatest stories, I think, about the uh, assurance of the resurrection of someone who in our lifetimes came to be a follower of Christ as a result of studying the evidence of the resurrection was a man by the name of Chuck Colson. Do you recognize that name? Chuck Colson became a believer after years in prison and he became a believer, and he became a, uh, an, a, an apologist for the reality of the resurrection and of Christ. And he has in his book, Loving God, a chapter called Watergate and the Resurrection. Now, I love that, and I'll be honest with you. When I first bought that book some 30 or so years ago and saw that chapter, I went right to it. Because I remember all that Watergate stuff on, the, on TV and in the news. It was an awful time in our country's history. And uh, Chuck Colson was one of uh, those men responsible for Watergate. 
Uh, he was a, uh, an insider to President Nixon. He was one of his hatchet men at the time, an unbeliever who was extremely powerful among a group of men who were extremely powerful. And this is what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie together for three weeks. We had power to move armies. We had power to, to gain the approval of the president. We had all kinds of power, but we could not keep our story together for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So we have uh, the testimony of the conversion of the, uh, the testimony of the apostles. Let me just close with this thought. What about the conversion of the Apostle Paul? The conversion of the Apostle Paul himself. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to persecute Christians in this early church in the city of Damascus. He had consented and approved of the execution of the first martyr of the church, a man by the name of Stephen. And he was a powerful man, a Pharisee, who had influence, who got papers, and he had the power of life and death. He had been a vehement opponent of the church and had even consented to the stoning and to the death of many of its followers. Unlike the other apostles, Paul had not been a follower of Jesus during Jesus' ministry. Thus, if you bring him in, we bring him in, listen to me now, we're in a court of law as a hostile witness. Here is our hostile witness. But guess what? He too has encountered a resurrected Savior. And so here is someone who was not originally in favor of the church. He hated Jesus. He rejected him as Messiah until he was confronted with a resurrected Savior. He had no incentive to accept Christian testimony about the resurrection unless he himself had an experience that he could definitely interpret as confirmation that Jesus was alive. And that's what our text said in the very last sentence. And to me, a person born out of time, so to speak, not in the time of the apostles that I walked and talked with them, but in an untimely way later, after the resurrection, Jesus came to me. Now understand, if you were making up this story, you would never make up that part of it. 
How in the world are you going to get a Pharisee to agree to be one of your witnesses? And keep in mind what this cost the Apostle Paul. He recounts some of it in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, how he was whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked as a result of his faith. But understand, it wasn't the physical suffering for Paul that was the worst. It was the spiritual suffering. He was a Pharisee. He was a keeper of the law. He was a Jew of the Jews. He said in Philippians that if anyone had reason to be proud of his faith, I had more reason. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, 70 men, the supreme court of all Israel. Can you imagine the spiritual implications of him professing faith in Christ? You can't make that stuff up. That would have been not only a false witness as they would consider him, that would be blasphemous. But understand he had a real encounter, a religious transformation. He went from regarding Jesus as a false prophet to believing that Jesus was the unique Son of God who alone offered salvation to all humanity and one who overcame death and the grave and was a resurrected Savior. This would be like today, only even much more so. It would have been like as shocking or more as it would be today if we heard that Richard Dawkins, a very vocal Oxford atheist, suddenly announcing that he had become a follower of Christ. As much as that would just rock the Christian world, the church world, understand when they heard that Saul of Tarsus had been saved and was now a follower of Christ, that he embraced not a world religion made up of millions of people, but a small, despised, persecuted religious group, a sect with no power and few adherents. And he became one of them. Well, I've taken too much of your time, but we could go on for days and days looking at the reasons for Jesus being who he said he was, for the reliability of scriptures, for evidence to believe the resurrection as being a real historical event. We have faith in the gospel message, but it's not faith in some kind of fairy tale, some kind of wild, un unsubstantiated story. Our faith is grounded in a Savior who was God in the flesh, who came to earth to save sinless or sinful people like us. He lived a sinless life to do that. Who died a gruesome, excruciating death. Who was buried in a borrowed tomb and who rose again from the dead. Let me summarize it with these words. The gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a story grounded in history but which offers for us the assurance of a blessed 
eternity. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that you didn't do things in the dark, that you didn't perform the works of Jesus in secret, that you didn't give just a story that could be made up and enhanced by sinful man, but you gave us evidence that demands a verdict. And I pray that we'll have confidence in our faith, confidence in you, and that we'll be faithful witnesses of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.